What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to the program. It is Not Your Average Boston Sports Podcast. I am your host, Garrett Hayden. You can listen to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. You can follow, give us a rating on Apple Music, Apple Podcasts. Um, and you can follow our socials on uh, Twitter and on Facebook. Uh, welcome to the program, everyone. It's a uh, Good to be back on this uh, beautiful Monday. Uh, weather is starting to improve, which is great. I uh, got a lot of got a lot of stuff for you guys today. Uh, obviously, you know, heavy on the Celtics, heavy on the Red Sox, but there are some other things um, that I will want to get to later in the podcast. So good to be back. Uh, good to be back with uh, John Veneziano last week for Guest Friday. It was nice uh, getting to talk with John, talk some. U.S. men's national team. We'll talk a little bit about them later, um, but great to have John on Guest Friday last week. John, um, you know, has a great uh, Instagram page. I, um, I think we mentioned it on the podcast, but he has a great Instagram page full of highlights and videos if you are interested in that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, if you have not listened to the um, conversation that I had with John last week, you can go find it on uh, Apple and Spotify. Nice, fun conversation. Good to talk to John as always. So um, I would like to say on the podcast, and I'll announce this uh, later, we're going to do another mailbag this week. Um, so I will definitely keep you guys uh, in the loop about that. You know, I'll post on the social pages, um, let you guys know so you guys can uh, send in questions. We had a really successful mailbag the last time, a couple of weeks ago, months ago. I honestly kind of have lost track at this point, but uh, hopefully get some good questions in this time of year. So uh, looking forward to that later this week. Probably we'll be recording that either Thursday or Friday, but I will let you know on the social pages um, all the information about that. So I think to start off, obviously, naturally, we're going to talk Celtics. Um, you know, a tough loss last night in Game 2. Uh, the Warriors, with a tremendous third quarter, um, were able to take control of that game. Uh, win rather easily last night, 107-88, the final score. Um, you know, the Celtics just didn't seem like they were in an offensive rhythm all night. You know, really the only person that... I think played well was Tatum, but I even think that despite him, or no, that's the wrong word, even with him playing, you know, at a pretty good level, you know, there really wasn't much else that happened with the team positively, offensively, other than him, um, you know, and even though he had a good offensive game, he wasn't really efficient, you know, shot eight for 19, you know, did make six of nine from the beyond the arc, which was huge, but it just didn't seem like he made as much of a positive offensive impact as he did in game one, you know, and I know that maybe that's deceiving because he didn't score a lot of points. You know, he only scored 12 points. He made three baskets in that entire game, but he did have 13 assists, you know, and was able to get other guys involved, but it really didn't seem like much of that happened last night. You know, the Celtics just seemed to be playing a little bit more of an isolation-heavy game. And, you know, I think 
naturally they run into problems when they start playing like that. You know, it seems like, you know, one person tries to do too much and they turn the ball over, you know, and that was also, you know, a big issue with the loss last night with the turnovers and just the inefficient offense. And I think, you know, naturally the Warriors were going to play, you know, a better offensive game. They were going to shoot better, you know, certain guys, Jordan Poole in, in particular, were going to play better in this series. It just was, you know, inevitable. You know, there's no way that he was going to play as poorly as he did in game one the entire series. You know, you knew that that wasn't going to happen. You knew that Steph Curry was going to make some shots. You know, I think that the Warriors were, were due for a good offensive game, and that I think is what happened. And then obviously the Celtics helped them out with 33 points off of turnovers, which is, you know, ridiculous. The Celtics had 18 turnovers. Warriors scored 33 points off those turnovers. The Warriors, I think, were like a plus 18 in points off turnovers, which obviously that's going to make a tremendous difference. And it did, you know, you lost the game by 19 points, you know, not saying that, oh, if the Celtics didn't turn it over that many times, they would have won, but they certainly would have had a better chance to win. You know, and really it just seemed like everything came apart in that third quarter, which kind of was the issue in game one, which, you know, caused the Celtics to have to play an almost perfect fourth quarter to come away with a win. So, you know, I think that that is probably a concerning area is how poorly the Celtics played in the third quarters in both games. You know, I think last night, obviously, it was more pronounced because, you know, you have a two-point game coming in after halftime, and then at the end of three, Poole knocks down that half-court shot. You're down 23 entering the fourth quarter. So it's like, clearly, it was not the same spot as they were in in game one. I mean, certainly, they were down by 12 points, which is a good amount of points. But I think, like, you're down 23. You're probably not making that up in one quarter. And so, you know, I think that, you know, once that third quarter avalanche happened, it kind of was more of the same at the beginning of the fourth. And, you know, coach pulls out the starters or most of the starters. And, you know, it kind of was a, in my opinion, you know, probably a wake up call to be like, you know, you guys want to play like this, you know, you're not going to play the fourth quarter. And, you know, some of the starters did play some minutes in the fourth, but I think, you know, bringing in the bench guys earlier was kind of just a, you know, a sign to the team that, okay, uh, we're going to bring in guys that want to play hard and want to play with focus. The Celtics just really didn't play with any focus at all in that third quarter, you know, kind of were playing out of sorts a little bit. But I think as much as, you know, last night was a problem, the Celtics did come away with a series split. And I think that that is kind of what's important to take out of these first two games. And I know that it's difficult because the Celtics lost by such a wide margin in game one and, you know, played the third quarter very similar to how they did in game one. But I think coming out with a series split is definitely a positive. I think that, you know, obviously with the game last night did not go the way that a lot of people wanted, but you can't expect that the Celtics are going to win both games out in, uh, out in San Francisco. I think it just was not going to happen that way, whether, you know, the Celtics didn't play well or there was something else going on, which it kind of seemed a little bit interesting in that first half, especially with, 
you know, some of the uh, foul calls that were called. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say that the officiating was the reason the Celtics lost. That's not what I'm saying. But, you know, you could tell that the pace of the game was definitely, you know, it kind of kept getting slowed down because of a lot of whistles. So, you know, I think that it's just going to happen and it's going to be what it's going to be. But I think the Celtics didn't do themselves any favors with 18 turnovers and 88 points. I mean, you're not going to win any games scoring 88 points. You're just not going to. You're not going to win games when when you're gifting teams 30 points off of your turnovers. You're just not going to win that way. And so I think, you know, the combination of the turnovers, the bad third quarter, and kind of just the ineffective offense, you know, I think that of the guys that came up big in game one, you know, no one was really efficient. You know, Smart was one for six, Derek White four for 13, you know, did make a couple of threes, which I think is important. But, you know, Horford takes four shots in that game, you know, and I don't know what that is a, what that's a factor of, you know, he didn't take, um, didn't take any three pointers, just really wasn't a factor. And I think that it is fair to assume that you can't expect him to score 26 points every game. You can't expect him to hit five or six threes in every game. Um, but I think it just was kind of interesting to see that he kind of was not really involved in much of the offense. Um, you know, and Smart was one for six. I think that Jalen Brown is five for 17. You know, no one really was efficient in this game, and that kind of was the story of the offense. No one was efficient. You know, they really kind of didn't move the ball as well as they should have. Um, so, you know, I think that it's just kind of you got to readjust and you got to find ways to get, you know, easier looks. You got to find ways to not try to do everything yourself and try to, you know, trust in your teammates. And, you know, I think part of the issue with Tatum especially is I think that the Celtics knew or he knew that he had struggled so much offensively and he kind of seemed like he wanted to get himself going. And I think that there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not trying to say that, you know, he went out there playing selfish, but I think that there's something to be said for, you know, trying to get yourself going offensively that maybe you focus a little too much on yourself and you try to get yourself going. And I think that Jason is at his best when he is dangerous, knocking down shots, but also when he is involving other team, other teammates. And I think that he can't do this thing where he, you know, has one game where he shoots, shoots poorly and gets his teammates involved. And then the next game, you know, shoots better, has a lot of points, but doesn't have a lot of assists. I mean, I think that for the Celtics to beat this Warriors team, Jason needs to play both of those roles. You know, he needs to be the guy that can knock down shots that can go for 30 points at any time, but also be someone that's a threat to make the extra play, you know, to make the smart play, to challenge for six, seven, eight assists in a game, maybe even more. You know, I think that the Celtics need him to be at the top of his game if they're going to win this series. You know, they need him to be a good facilitator, a good ball distributor, but also be the guy that can score. Um, So I think that you want to see him be a little bit better in game three. You want to see him be a little bit more involving his teammates. And, you know, I think that it's easy to find 
things to be discouraged by in these first two games. But I think the Celtics did exactly what they wanted to, you know, get a split. You know, obviously, when you go out in the playoffs, you want to win every single game that you play. You're not playing to lose. But I think, you know, coming into this series, coming into a series that you didn't have home court advantage, taking one of the games is what's most important. And that's exactly what they did. You know, I think that as much as last night was disappointing, they were great in game one, you know, and they were able to get that first win and, you know, prove that they can beat this Warriors team, that they can beat this team at home. And I think, you know, it gives you confidence that, you know, they can play with this team and, you know, things will change when they go to Boston. You know, I think undoubtedly the Celtics have made great adjustments after losses. You know, I think they're 6-0 and after losing a game in this postseason. So, you know, they're a team that kind of for the most part of the last few months, they've not let losses linger. And I think that, you know, that's something that's a testament to the coaching staff, but I think also to the players to not get bothered by, you know, losing games like that, losing games where, you know, you play really poorly or you blow a lead or you do something like that where, you know, we've seen time and time again this postseason, the Celtics, you know, blowing games or, you know, losing games down the stretch, but then they come back the next game and they play really, really inspired. So, you know, I think that hopefully you can see a little bit more of a crowd get involved, you know, with this game three. You know, I think that Golden State's crowd is is its crowd, but I think that, you know, the Celtics crowd and the Garden, I think, has more of kind of a advantage for the Celtics than uh, Chase Center does for the Warriors. So, you know, hopefully the Celtics can tap into that. The crowd can kind of um, get them going and, you know, the Celtics can make some offensive adjustments, you know, trying to get easier baskets uh, for Tatum and Brown. You know, I think the the biggest thing for them is trying to get to the free throw line, trying to, you know, exploit the, the mismatches, you know, and take guys to the basket and, you know, not fall in love with the jump shots, not fall in love with the, you know, isolation where you take the ball and you hold it for eight to 10 seconds and then take a contested three. You know, I think that you want to move the ball. You want to get the Warriors team off balance. You want to get them in rotation because, you know, (laughs) when the Celtics are moving the ball the way that they can, the way that we've seen for the better part of the last you know, five, six months, whatever it's been, the Celtics are at their best when they're moving the ball and when they're moving the ball quickly, making the right decisions and knocking down shots. So, you know, I think that you may hear that people want to get all, you know, wild with, you know, adjustments, but I think the biggest thing is just you get back to, you do what got you here in a way that you play the level, the same level of basketball that you've been playing for the better part of the last six months. You know, we're looking at June, you know, the Celtics started playing better around the new year. So I think, or uh, five five months, that might be more accurate. Uh, But, you know, I have confidence confidence in this team and confidence that, you know, they're not going to let a loss like this be an issue. Um, I think, you know, the extra day of rest is big. The Celtics can get Rob Williams to, maybe have an extra day. You know, he didn't play too many minutes last night. The Celtics did have to bring Daniel Tyson to play some minutes 
um, in game two, which, you know, I don't hate the idea of Tice playing because I think that you don't want to get into a situation where you're only playing eight guys. You know, you want to give certain guys on your bench some minutes so that they can come in, you know, if things get dire. But it's hard to have Daniel Tice on the floor defensively, especially when Curry's in the game, because he will take advantage of him like we saw a couple times last night. So, you know, hopefully Rob Williams can play more minutes than last night. You know, he only played 14 minutes, and I think for the Celtics to win this series, he's going to need to play at least 24 minutes a night. You know, he doesn't need to play 30 minutes. He doesn't need to play every single second of the game, but I think you need to have him have more of an impact um, than if he's playing 14 minutes. So it'll be curious to see what he can do uh, with an extra day of rest. Um, one of the other things I did want to talk about last night, um, unfortunately, it became a little bit of a uh, Draymond Green sideshow uh, for parts of this game. And I think that, unfortunately, the Celtics kind of let it get to them. Um, and look, the first thing I'll say is Draymond's a competitor. You know, we know that. We know that he's been a competitor the minute that he has entered this league. Um, and I think that, obviously, he has his game. He has his way of trying to get under the opponent's skin and will kind of do anything to do that. And I think the Celtics need to understand that, need to play through it, you know, and I think not get caught up in the things that he's doing or the things that he's saying. I mean, it was pretty... <laughs> it was pretty obvious that he was playing pretty close to that line last night with some of the antics with, with Jalen Brown, especially. Um, but I think the Celtics have to be the bigger team and they have to not let that bother them because undoubtedly he's going to do that the entire series. And, you know, I think you, you liken him kind of to um, Brad Marchand in a way that I think if he's on your team, you like him as an agitator, but if he's not on your team, you find him really annoying. But I think the Celtics, again, have to be the bigger team and have to, you know, not let that bother them. They have to play their game and let their play do the talking, you know, let Draymond tire himself out by talking and, you know, let him do all these, you know, wild antics and, you know, the nonsense, you know, and I think that Obviously, from the tip-off of that game, he was trying to set the tone um, that the Warriors were not going to be pushed around. But I think the Celtics have to respond, and they have to show that they're not going to be pushed around. But I think that you have to be smart. You know, you can't, you know, it's it's really, you know, it's really going to frustrate a lot of people. But it's like, you know, the Celtics can't retaliate. You know, unfortunately, I think that if the Celtics do retaliate, that's going to be something that's going to hurt them more than it hurts the Warriors, you know, and maybe it's not fair, but it's like, that's what's going to happen, you know, and I think that's kind of what happened last night. I mean, I think if you were to ask me personally about that exchange between him and Jalen last night, I wouldn't have called anything, um, but I think just the fact that, you know, the NBA is not going to probably isn't going to eject him, you know, unless something is very obvious, you know, but I think, you know, again, and it kind of goes back to complaining about the officials, you're not going to be able to, to do anything, you know, that is just, it's just complaining, and it's not going to get you anywhere, and I think, you know, you just have to keep playing, 
You just have to keep playing the game. You know, Draymond's competitive. He's going to try to get at you. He's going to try to get in your head. But the Celtics have to be smarter. You know, they have to, you know, not get caught up in that nonsense um, because they think it could become more of a story in this series if they don't, you know, prove that they can bounce back from, you know, some of those things. And it's not exactly that the Celtics, you know, are, are like soft or anything. I'm not trying to say that, oh, they need a, you know, enforcer, like a Bill Lambier person, but like, I think that they have to realize that this is what this series is probably going to be like, and you need to be able to, you know, focus on your own game and not focus what other people are trying to do to knock you off your game. So, you know, it'll be curious to see what keep what goes on with that, if that continues to be a storyline, but hopefully it isn't. Uh, we'll take a look at the next couple of games, the Celtics, again, Wednesday, game three. Celtics will host the Warriors at the Garden, and then Game 4 is on uh, Friday night, and then Game 5, as there will be a Game 5, as both teams have won a game in the series. Game 5 is scheduled for next Monday at 9 p.m., and then next Thursday will be Game 6, and then next Sunday will be a Game 7. Both 6 and 7 are if necessary. So I think we're going to move to the Red Sox, talk a little bit about the Red Sox. We're back to 500, if you can believe it. The Red Sox obviously were sitting at 14 and 22. You know, they were sitting at 10 and 19, 14 and 22. But uh, since 14 and 22, the Red Sox have won uh, 13 at their last 18. So, you know, evening their record at 27, 27. And 27 after a three-game sweep against the Athletics in Oakland. Oakland, obviously, not the best team in the American League. They're actually one of the worst. Um, but I think good to see the Red Sox getting back to 500, getting back to respectability, which I think is really huge. Um, as it really just kind of looked like it was going to be down in the dumps, but the Red Sox have turned it around. You know, played really excellent offensive baseball have been able to play really well situationally. And I think for the most part, you know, I think the pitching has done its job. You know, the bullpen can be a little shaky at times, but, you know, I think the starting rotation is, again, it's held up, you know, and that's one of the things that we've talked about plenty um, at the beginning of the season, that it really has kind of been the pitching that's been holding this team afloat that, you know, when the offense couldn't score runs, the, the starting rotation was you know, putting good starts together. And I think you've seen that for the majority of the last couple of weeks. You know, you have guys like Pavetta who have turned it on and have been unbelievable recently. You know, Evaldi has pitched better as of late. You know, you've gotten good, solid starting pitching from Evaldi, from Pavetta, uh, from Rich Hill, who's been able to go deep in some games. Um, Um, and then even you have someone like Michael Walker, who has kind of been a find for the Red Sox, and Garrett Whitlock that has pitched well um, in his, you know, starting appearances. So I think, you know, really the Red Sox have stayed the course with the pitching, and it's kind of held its own without Chris Sale, which is kind of um, interesting to see. I mean, obviously it'll be interesting to, to see when Sale does come back, um, whenever that is. Um, it sounds like he'll be throwing to hitters in a couple of days so 
you know, I think he's still kind of a ways away from getting back to the Red Sox, but it's good news that the the rotation has, has done its job. I think that you even saw it yesterday, you know, Rich Hill going six innings, pitching some really solid baseball. And, you know, again, he's not a guy that you can rely upon to pitch like that every single time. But I think that he's given you respectable innings and, you know, a lot of other guys that you may not have expected. You know, I didn't know what to expect out of Waka this season, and he's been excellent. You know, I think Pavetta has bounced back in a big way from a bad start to the season. Um, you know, I feel like his ERA has to be close to like one or two over his last seven starts. Um, he's been excellent every time he's pitched. So that's been solid. And, you know, obviously the, the offense has returned. You know, the Red Sox have been getting some offensive outbursts in some games. They've had some really good timely hitting and it's come from, you know, all over the lineup, which is excellent. I think that it's, Again, just great when you can get timely hitting from every guy in the lineup that, you know, every single guy can drive in runs, you know, and it's not just the guys that you would expect, you know, not just the Devers, the Bogarts, and the J.D. Martinez's of the world, but you're getting guys like Franchi Cordero and Jackie Bradley and Trevor Story and, you know, Verdugo, you're getting those guys involved which is great. And I think, you know, it's, I think it's what excited people at the beginning of the year with, you know, all the bats that you had, all the guys that could hurt you, you know, one to six. And I think, you know, even bringing in someone like Jaron Duran into the fold has, you know, helped the offense has kind of kickstarted them, um, especially in this Oakland series. So, you know, excited to see what he can do over the next few weeks. But I think that when you get offense from every single spot in the lineup, you know, you're you're doing something right. And I think even as I mentioned, the guys that you wouldn't expect, like the Franchi Corderos and the JBJs, you know, Franchi's been hitting really well recently, which is great. Um, you know, as a guy that's had success with a lot of, you know, had success with a lot of at-bats that, you know, yield balls in play with a really high exit velocity. You know, someone who's getting good, solid wood on the ball. Uh, Franchi, if you go back to his game, I mean, he went two for four against Baltimore. Um, he has had hits in, let me just... Do some quick math as he has. He's hits in seven of his last 10 games. Um, so he's come on recently, which has been great. And obviously, you know, had the walk-off grand slam, but I think that he is now proving to the Red Sox that, you know, you kind of want him to be in the lineup that I think obviously is still improving, still developing. But the fact that you're seeing results now with him is great. You know, I think that it, definitely takes a little pressure off of the Red Sox. You know, obviously he came over in the Benintendi trade. Benintendi obviously has had a really good season, but I think it's kind of breathed a sigh of relief that the Red Sox are getting production out of Franchi, not only at the plate, but, you know, he's played in the field. You know, I don't know if he's, you know, not good with all the uh, 
you know, advanced statistics and all that, but I think that he's done a solid job when he's played the outfield. You know, he's not really looked out of place. And, you know, I think with the Red Sox wanting to keep his bat in the lineup, they're willing to put him in a bunch of different spots. You know, at first base, I think that there are still some kinks that need to be worked out with Franchi defensively, at least. But I think that it's good to see that the Red Sox are trying to find ways to keep him in the lineup, that they're not just saying, okay, you know, we can only play him once every other day. You know, it seems like he's playing a lot more regularly, which is outstanding. So hopefully that can continue uh, with the good at-bats, the good solid contact that he's been putting together. Um, he's currently hitting 247 on the season with uh, three home runs and 18 RBIs. This is kind of, seems like the first season in his professional career that he's been able to put it together. He's obviously had some injuries, but I think that he's done a really solid job so far um, this season for the Red Sox, so hopefully that can continue. Uh, one of the guys that's been amazing pretty much start to finish has been Rafael Devers. You know, obviously, homered in his very first half-bat of the season. Um, had an amazing stretch in the month of May, hit 381 with eight home runs and 17 RBIs. He's already hitting 313 in this month with five hits in his first 16 at-bats. So, you know, he's someone that you really don't have to worry about offensively. You know, I think that he's putting together a great season already. 12 homers, 31 RBIs, and hitting 341 in his first 54 games, 53 starts at least. Um, and he's been really excellent, you know, against righties, against lefties, and, you know, pretty much any situation at home or on the road. Um, you know, he's been excellent. I think that he's been a huge reason why the Red Sox have kind of started to find their footing, especially offensively. And it's not to say that, it's not to say that, you know, Devers was, you know, bad in the first half, but I think that, you know, he's starting to make a huge difference offensively and it's starting to, you know, rub off on the other guys, you know, when you hit 381, when you hit 313, you know, in the last two months or whatever it is, I think, you know, some of that starts to excite the other guys and starts to kind of push them to want to be able to, you know, kind of match that type of energy and be able to get big hits in big moments. And I think, you know, you're just seeing the ultimate development of his game, you know, and none was more obvious than him taking that, you know, pitch the other way yesterday for the home run. You know, it's just, it's just pretty amazing to see the development in his offensive game just is just able to hit in any situation against any pitcher, you know, his batting against a left-handed pitcher and he's able to take that pitch the other way for a home run. It's just pretty amazing uh, when you can watch him up close. So he's been really excellent. I think, you know, he and, and Franchi especially, I think have been able to, to kickstart this turnaround for the Sox that I think has been pretty impressive. You know, 13 wins in their last 18, they're back to 500. Uh, we'll take a look at the standings a little, in a little bit, but I think the Red Sox are, you know, in a pretty good spot right now as they travel to Los Angeles to take on the Angels for a four-game series, which will start tonight on the road. Obviously, the Red Sox are on the road until next weekend when they have a three-game set against the Seattle Mariners, but if we take a look at this four-game set against the Angels, 
Uh, Michael Waka will go in the first game tonight against Noah Syndergaard. And then Garrett Whitlock will pitch Tuesday. Nathan Abaldi against uh, Shohei Otani on Wednesday night, so that'll be interesting. And then Nick Pavetta will go on Thursday, and then the Red Sox three in Seattle. Um, and then they'll be back home for a pretty good home stretch of nine games against Oakland, St. Louis, and Detroit. And then we are almost to the month of July, which is kind of amazing. But you know, hopefully it continues for the Red Sox. Hopefully they can continue to you know, play good baseball, get the good starting pitching, and be able to support the starting pitching by driving in runs at key moments. So, you know, that is going to have to continue. Red Sox really have no room for for resting as they have, uh, you know, six or seven games in seven days. So that will be interesting to see how they do out in Los Angeles and then out in Seattle. L.A. has lost 11 in a row, so hopefully the Red Sox are catching them at a good at a good time. Um, and Seattle has kind of leveled off after leveled off after a good start. So hopefully the Red Sox can continue to uh, continue to mash and uh, get good starting pitching. So we'll see what happens this week. So I think that's going to do it for the Red Sox. Take a look at some Bruins stuff. There's plenty of Bruins stuff to get to, uh, fortunately or unfortunately. However, you want to look at it, the Bruins. Uh, did get a bit of good news yesterday, or at least exciting news for one of the players on the team, Patrice Bergeron, who is still undecided about his future, uh, won his record fifth uh, Selkie Award. So uh, the award is named after Frank's, Frank J. Selkie, and it's given annually to the forward who best excels in the defensive aspects of the game as judged by the Professional Hockey Writers Association. So uh, fifth time that Bergeron's won the award most in history as he breaks Bob Gainey's record of four times, who had previously won it four times. Bergeron previously won in 2012, 2014, 2015, and then 2017. This was also a record that uh, Bergeron was named a finalist for this award for the 11th season in a row, which actually is a record for the most consecutive seasons a player has been named a finalist for any award in NHL history. So pretty amazing accomplishment for Patrice as he wins uh, his fifth, uh, fifth award ever. I think that um, Elias Lindholm and Kopitar, Andre Kopitar, were the other two finalists, but definitely... You know, Patrice definitely deserved this. I think that, you know, I'm not not one for understanding uh, a lot of advanced statistics, but I know that he was having a tremendous season, you know, based on that, you know, obviously had 65 points, but, you know, almost had a thousand face-off wins and led the league in face-off percentage. And, you know, you take a look at some of the kind of advanced statistics, um, shot attempts allowed per 60, um, Corsi percentage, expected goals against per 60, shot share, uh, things like that. You know, he all led the league in all those categories um, and then was part of a Bruins defense that allowed the fourth fewest goals in the league. So, you know, just a tremendous honor for Patrice. And I really think that uh, he's definitely going to get this award named after him at some point in the future. I mean, I think how 
how can you not if he has, has the record for most wins? Um, but a tremendous award for for Patrice, and I think, you know, we're able to we're so lucky to see him play in action or have seen him play, you know, depending on what his decision is. But you know, just as amazing to be able to watch kind of the standard for defensive excellence out of a forward. Um, it's just kind of so. It's just refreshing to see that you know, someone like Patrice gets celebrated for, you know, defensive play. And I know that defensive play, especially in forwards, is not always necessarily, you know, the most exciting part of the game, because obviously the most exciting part of the game is, you know, the points and the assists and the goals. But I think, you know, Patrice has, you know, always played the game the right way. And I think that always has been in the right place at the right time, whether it's scoring goals, whether it's you know, being there for, uh, you know, poke check or, you know, just making all those great defensive plays as we're so used to seeing him make. So a tremendous honor for uh, Patrice as he wins the Selkie Trophy for the fifth time. It's still kind of amazing to, to think about him as a 36-year-old, you know, playing, you know, arguably, arguably his best he's played arguably the best that he's played in his career. So uh, just a tremendous accomplishment. And, you know, whatever he decides, he's going to go down as a, a, a legend, you know, in the Boston Bruins hockey community, but also in NHL history. You know, it's, you know, not hard to believe that he'll be a hockey Hall of Famer one day, but just a tremendous um, honor for him to add to his uh, legendary resume. So that's the kind of good news there's, some news that's exactly great with uh, some Bruins opting for uh, surgeries this offseason. And, you know, it's leaving the Bruins in kind of a precarious position um, to open the year. And, you know, Bergeron's one of those guys that um, will go through or has gone through offseason surgery, had um, an elbow sur surgery recently. He'll be out for 10 to 12 weeks. And obviously, if he does decide to come back, that will kind of affect the Bruins from a personnel standpoint. Um, but obviously, you know, as he said, really no word on his decision for the future. So we'll kind of just keep tabs on that. But obviously, he had Brad Marsh in that had surgery on both his hips. Um, so he'll likely be out until at least Thanksgiving, I think is the thought. Um the Bruins also announced earlier in the week that Mike Riley, or late last week, I should say, that Mike Riley had a surgery to repair a right ankle tendon and removal of bone fragments. Um, and so he is expected to be, to be out for three months, which puts him back in action at, at the beginning of September. So possibility that Mike Riley does not miss any time and he might be ready for training camp, which usually takes place in September. Uh, Charlie McAvoy underwent the uh, left shoulder arthroscopic stabilization. And yeah, just kind of a mouthful there. Um, he's expected to be out for six months and the surgery was um, what happened on uh, the last Friday. Um, then Mac Rizlik also had a right shoulder, or excuse me, McAvoy with the left shoulder 
Grizzlick with the right shoulder, and I think Grizzlick was expected. The other guys, I don't know if it really was expected. You know, I think Marshan, we thought that he might have surgery, but I think, you know, it might have just been smarter for him to opt for that, and so that's what happened. So obviously, with these guys being out, you know, McAvoy out six months, which puts him back, you know, December 3rd, if you want to get technical, um, then Grizzlick, you know, puts him out till November 3rd. But then again, it doesn't necessarily mean that all these guys are going to be out for this period of time. You know, it is possible that, you know, these guys could do really well in recovery and could be able to return sooner than, you know, the expected recovery time. Because as they say, it's approximately the approximate recovery time. And so I think it is possible that these guys could return on the earlier side. You know, that's at least what the hope is, you know, and not on the later side, because if that's the case, then, you know, the Bruins might be in a really tough spot with a lot of these guys being, you know, key players. You know, Bergeron and Marsha, and those are, you know, arguably your two best forwards. And McAvoy and Grizzly, those are, you know, two of your top four defensemen. So, obviously, it's not ideal. But I think that, you know, this Bruins team has always found a way to be competitive and be a solid team, even with certain guys being hurt. Now, I know that Marshand has been probably been, has probably been their best player over the last few years, but I don't really think you can count this team out, you know, and obviously there might be a huge change in leadership if, you know, Bergeron's not back, but I think this team has a way of kind of surprising you, and I just think that you know, yeah, it's easy to be doom and gloom with all these guys being out and being like, oh my God, you know, they're not going to be back at full strength until, you know, Thanksgiving or December, but this team could surprise you, you know, and I think that there could be guys that would be thrust into larger roles that they wouldn't have been in either, like, it wouldn't have been in, you know, if, if these surgeries didn't happen, um, but I think that this group has the ability to, you know, surprise you and does have the ability to play at a high level that people didn't expect. I mean, remember, this team was 14-10-2 at one point last year. You know, they were out of the playoff structure in thanks, at Thanksgiving, which, you know, is typically an indicator of where you're going to be in the playoffs. And I think the Bruins did, you know, kind of flip a switch and, you know, place play better hockey after the new year so you know I think it's easy to be like oh you know I'm gonna throw myself off a cliff because these guys are out but you know they could return earlier there could be guys that we're not expecting that make a big impact and you know it's I don't know it's just one of those things where it's like yes it's easy to you know, be super negative and be like, oh my God, the Bruins are going to be bad and they're going to, you know, tank. But it's like, as someone on Twitter said, you know, one of the, the best Bruins follows on Twitter, Bruins Network, you know, as he said, this team's not really in a position to, you know, tank. They're in a position where they kind of have to contend. They really have no other choice. And so I think, you know, sure, guys will be out, but you're still going to have good players on your team. It's not like, you're taking away all the Bruins' good players. I mean, if you look at, you know, Pasternak, he's going to be an, an elite player. You know, Lindholm is still going to be healthy. 
you know, you're still going to have a good portion of the defense that's going to be able to play. You know, certainly there are going to be some guys that are going to be asked to play, you know, bigger minutes. But it's like, you look at someone like Coyle and Halla, they had pretty decent years in the regular season. You know, I don't think it's crazy to think that the Bruins can't be, you know, a competitive team. You know, it's not like they're going to lose 20 of their first 25 games. The Bruins aren't that bad. You know, they have Taylor Hall, they have David Pasternak, they have, you know, guys who can perform. It's not like, it's not like this team is just suddenly going to be bad. Um, but, you know, then again, it's easy in this town to be over overtly negative. And I guess that is just way easier for people to do. And that's fine. But um, I'm never going to be one of those people. So I'll just say that. Um, but obviously, with these surgeries, the offseason does become a little bit more challenging. Because I think you still don't know what Bergeron's plan is. You know, with some of these guys being out for a period, you know, you may be forced to put these guys in long-term injured reserve. And so then, you know, the money kind of gets weird because you're going to have a lot of cap space, but you're not really necessarily going to be able to use all that. And so I think it'll be curious to see how the Bruins approach the offseason. I think someone needs to get traded. They're going to need to move salary because I don't think you really can afford to go into next season with the same group. You know, I think there could be some kind of salary cap gymnastics that you do, but I think you could also see some movement and some trades, you know, and the Bruins could be, I don't want to say active in free agency because I think that implication means that, oh, they're going to go out and spend, you know, 15, 20 million dollars. They can't really do that, but it'll be interesting to see if the Bruins do move some guys and try to move some salary around so they can try to improve the team and you know, put them in a good spot at the beginning of the year when, you know, most of these guys are probably still going to be out. So I think certainly the surgeries, it can be easy to, to look at as a negative, but um, I believe this team will be all right. You know, I think that obviously there still needs to be some improvements on the roster. You know, it'd be interesting to see if, um, you know, they do announce Sweeney getting re-signed, which it seemed like it was kind of a foregone conclusion, but we've not really heard anything about that. But, you know, I think it'll be interesting to see how the Bruins approach um, the offseason and the draft as it gets closer. And, you know, hopefully uh, the Bruins will know what Bergeron's decision is soon, and then they can kind of go from there, you know, if they want to, you know, work him into the fold with a new contract or if he does retire, you know, try to expedite the process of bringing in someone who could be a, I don't really want to say the word replacement because it's not really fair to say that, but, you know, someone who could come in and kind of give you a similar level of production that Patrice gave you last year. So, you know, that will be interesting to see depending on whatever his decision is. And, you know, yeah, in the fairy tale land that the Bruins get David Gregory to come back, that certainly would be interesting, but then again, I'm not going to say never because you never know, but I think it's just my opinion that I don't believe he's coming back, but you know, hey, people can dream and I'm, I'm not one to shut down people's dreams. So, you know, we'll see, see if anything comes of that, but, uh, you know, certainly the Bruins have said that if David does want to return, they will welcome him. So you now that could be an interesting thing to kind of keep your eye on if, 
that does happen. I don't believe it's going to happen, but hey, you never know. So I think we're going to move on, talk a little bit about the Patriots as they have begun off-season workouts and OTAs. I think there was a mini camp that started uh, today, and I believe that Isaiah Wynn is there. I don't think he was at the OTAs, but, you know, it's an interesting time with football. You know, I think it's uh, a time that you're just starting to see teams come into come together after, you know, crazy off-season, but uh, one of the positives is Mac Jones's leadership, and, you know, a bunch of guys have bunch of guys on the Patriots have talked about this and during the during the training program and it's just great to hear you know I think that it's uh obvious to me and continues to be obvious that the Patriots made the right decision in the draft you know picking the right kid and you know not picking the guy with the strongest arm not picking the guy with the most athleticism but picking the guy that they most believe is going to be you know, good in this league for a, for a long period of time. And the early returns on this kid, you know, a year plus into his NFL career is the early returns are great. You know, and I think it's just great to hear that, you know, ownership, the players, everyone realizes that, okay, this is a guy who's going to come in and lead the team and kind of lead this team into the next era of, Patriots football, you know, obviously we were so lucky for, for so long to have Tom Brady and, you know, have that type of leadership. But, you know, it's funny to me, I honestly see some of the things in Tom Brady that I'm, or I see some of the things in Mac Jones that remind me a little bit of Tom, just his leadership ability, his ability to, you know, galvanize a team and not going to lie, some of the physical traits are kind of similar. You know, I think that and coming out of the draft especially, I think that, you know, that no one was really necessarily impressed with Max or Tom's, you know, physical abilities. I mean, obviously, it is a bit it is a bit different because Mac was a first-round pick. He was expected to be a first-round pick. You know, Tom Brady was a guy who was a sixth-round pick. You know, wasn't thought of at the time of being drafted. He wasn't thought of being a, you know... 20-year starter, greatest quarterback of all time. But it is interesting to see some of the similarities in the way that they kind of carry themselves. And I think that Mac is starting to, starting to come into his own with um, the leadership abilities. And it's just great to hear that, you know, already in the off-season program that he is showing these capabilities and the players are, are noticing and taking notice and realizing that, okay, this is the guy that's going to lead our team. So it's just great to hear the positive things going on uh, with Mac Jones. Uh, one of the areas that I am very interested about um, this point in training camp um, is cornerback. And I think obviously with um, JC Jackson leaving for the Chargers, it kind of created a hole. The Patriots have, you know, brought in some veterans, you know, a couple guys or uh, one of the guys has returned uh, from injury with Jonathan Jones coming back, and he'll probably be, you know, the guy in the slot. And Jalen Mills will be back. He had a pretty solid year last year. Um, they'll have some draft picks. You know, Jack Jones, it'll be interesting to see what he can bring. Um, but I think, 
you know, Malcolm Butler being brought in, Terrence Mitchell being brought in, you know, two guys that are not the sexiest names, but I think two guys that can be, could be really effective. But I think, you know, having this group of guys, it'll be good for competition. But I think that is kind of the one area that I'm very curious to see what, what happens in the training program, what happens in training camp, you know, what combination do the Patriots go with a lot in preseason? You know, what's a group that starts the year? You know, I think that we all know as Patriot fans that the Patriots tend to treat the early part of season, early part of seasons as like an extended preseason. So it'll be curious to see what, you know, combinations the Patriots use. And I think that's what I'm going to be noticing if I do make my way to training camp this summer is what kind of combinations are the Patriots using? You know, who's someone that maybe makes a difference at outside cornerback? Because I think that's really the biggest thing. You know, we know Jonathan Jones will probably work in the slot. But I think, you know, some of the guys I mentioned, Butler, Terrence Mitchell, Jalen Mills, you know, Jawan Williams, Sean Wade, those are some of the guys that I think it's going to be interesting to watch what you kind of see with them. Um, the mandatory minicamp is going on this week, and that is what Isaiah Wynn showed up for, so that's at least good. Um, I think that it's going to be curious to watch, you know, what the, what the offense looks like. It was interesting that um, I think Kendrick Bourne made this comment that there's some new terminology, um, kind of a new type of system but I don't anticipate that it's going to be much different. Um, but I think it is going to be interesting to see. I mean, obviously we've heard that Belichick has been involved in the offense a little bit. You know, I think that it's good to, good to hear that Joe Judge has made a good impression on some of the offensive players. And I think that, you know, as much as the uh, local media wants to continue to make it a story that Joe Judge was bad as a head coach, I really don't think that it's necessarily a horrible fit. You know, I think that it's easy to look at a head coaching record and say, oh, this person is bad at coaching. And it's just like, and I feel like I've said this before, but it's like, when you're a head coach, you are responsible for an entire team. You're responsible for an entire group of people. When you're an offensive assistant or even an offensive coach, your focus is a lot smaller. Your focus is working with, you know, guys that are working with a smaller group of people. And yes, naturally, Joe Judge did not do a great job with developing Daniel Jones in New York. But I think that with a lot more responsibilities, you know, I'm not going to say that, Not gonna, I'm not going to go as far as to say, oh, cut him some slack. But at the same time, it's like you're responsible for an entire team. If you're an offensive assistant, which is what his title is, you know, it's like he's responsible for a small group of people, and it's not like he's going to be the one, the one calling plays. I believe the Patriots are going to kind of do kind of a collaborative thing, but it's like they've always coached this way, you know, and that's kind of what bothers me about some people that are choosing to make this out to be more complicated than it needs to be. The Patriots have done this for years. They have not named a necessarily a defensive coordinator or an offensive coordinator and it's just at a certain point it's just semantics it's a job title like who cares who cares if there's no one 
that's actually named a defensive coordinator or actually named an offensive coordinator. It doesn't matter. If the players know what they're supposed to do, if the coaches, like, if the players and coaches understand it, no one else really has to. Like, it's just how it goes. I mean, like, I don't know. It's kind of unbelievable that I think people are continuing to make this a story and continuing to be concerned about a group of coaches that, you know, it's like, honestly, sir, sure, there are going to be growing pains, but it's like, I think the Patriots have made the decisions that they've made with the thought that, you know, it's kind of like, I think it's going to turn out okay. But, you know, naturally, if the Patriots have a bad offensive first game, you know, immediately where people are going to go. But I think that, you know, it's good to hear that the players and, or that the players in particular are, you know, excited about this and excited about, you know, Max leadership, excited about the new faces, the new terminology, the new type of system. You know, I think that that's good. And I think that it's, it's a good start. So it'd be interesting to see, you know, what you hear out of the mandatory minicamp and the off-season workout program. Um, and then as we get closer to training camp in July. So I think that's going to do it for the Patriots. You know, not really much with the revolution as the international break is still going on. Uh, they will not play a game until Sunday next week. So uh, no revolution for you this week. But we will get into talking about the other sporting things that are going on as uh, there's really no shortage of sports stuff to talk about. We have uh, Stanley Cup playoffs to get to the Lightning with a big win yesterday in Game 3 of the Eastern Conference Final, beating the Rangers 3-2. to two. The series is now 2-1 to one New York. Uh, you know, Tampa Bay is Tampa Bay, and a game like that, a win like that yesterday, is exactly why they're the champs. Um, you know, a couple power play goals for each team, but... Uh, the Lightning get an Andre Palat goal with 40 seconds left, get the win. They were dominant in that third third period, really deserved it, and come out with a win. But I think, you know, if you're a Rangers fan, you could probably think that there's no way that we're, you know, sweeping the series or it's going to be easy. You know, I think that it's kind of natural that Tampa Bay was going to get a Game 3 win, but I think the biggest thing is going to be Game 4. You know, can the Rangers put that loss aside and be like, you know, we're not going to let it affect us, you know, or does Tampa Bay kind of impose their will? You know, this is kind of a, a key moment in these playoffs where, you know, I always, you know, I feel like I always say this, that game fours are so important in a 2-1 series because they really are, you know, games that either make a series go really far one way where it's one team is one win away from being eliminated or it becomes a closer series and it becomes, you know, a best of three. So curious to see what that game four looks like. But Tampa Bay was really good in the third period um, of game three. And I think that was really why they were able to come out on top. Colorado and Edmonton in the Western Conference Finals. Uh, the Avalanche lead the series three games to none after a 4-2 win in game three on Saturday night. They go for the sweep tonight in Edmonton. Game four is at eight on TNT. You know, I think just Colorado's just a deeper team. You know, and I think that Edmonton, as great as their postseason run has been, Colorado's just too deep. You know, I think that 
we all know what Edmonton can do with McDavid and Dreisaitl and how well Evander Kane has played. He's actually suspended for the next game. It's wild to me how he was not suspended for more than one game. That was a pretty ugly hit that he laid on uh, Kadri um, in game three. So he'll miss tonight's game. But I think we all know what they can do offensively. And I think that, look, Mike Smith is Mike Smith. And I feel like he's so hard to, it's so hard to predict what you are going to get from him night in and night out. And I think for the most part, he's done a good job. But I think it's just, again, he, the Oilers went as far as he could take them. And I think realistically, this is as far as he can go. I just think that obviously he's not a, technically sound goalie. I mean, it kind of reminds me of a larger Tim Thomas, but I just think Colorado was just too deep in terms of what they can do with the forward group, how deep their defensemen are. You know, Kale McCarr is unbelievable, and I feel like with how solid their other guys are, you know, Kale McCarr is able to take so many offensive chances, and, you know, goaltending, there's a little bit of a question mark there with, with Darcy Kemper getting hurt in Game 2, I believe, and uh, Pavel Francois is the uh, goalie currently. I'm not sure what that injury situation is, but, you know, I think Colorado can beat Edmonton with Francois, but I think it'll be interesting to see if they do advance, you know, does Kemper, is he healthy enough to play? Because I think that as much as Edmonton, to me, is not a very deep team, I think the Rangers and the Lightning are very deep, so it'll be interesting to see how they could do in the Stanley Cup final, assuming that they advance, you know, Edmonton with Connor McDavid. In my opinion, you're never out of a series, even if it's 3-0. You know, he and Dreisaitl could just, you know, take over for a game or two, and before you know it, you're playing in a game seven. But I think at the end of the day, Colorado was just too deep, and I do expect them to finish the sweep tonight. Um, so obviously some other NHL notes Vander Kane suspended the one game for boarding. The uh, winner of the Lady Bing Trophy will be awarded tonight. That goes to the player chosen best to com best to combine sportsmanship, gentlemanly conduct, and ability, as voted by the Professional Hockey Writers Association. Kyle Connor, Jacob Slavin, and Jared Spurgeon are the three finalists, so that will be announced before tonight's game in Edmonton. Chris Weidman signed a two-year deal with the Montreal Canadiens, so he will return to Carey Price, winning the Masterton Trophy, and he will prepare like he will play next season. So good stuff there. And we will move on. Talk a little bit about the U.S. men's national team, obviously. Had a great conversation with John last week, John Veneziano. You could check out our conversation um, on you know where you get this podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You can listen. Uh, so John and I recorded that on Thursday night after uh, Team USA beat Morocco three to nothing. Um, then we talked a little bit about Team USA's game against uh, Uruguay. They played yesterday to a scoreless tie with another friendly, you know, and I think that with the friendlies, Team USA trying to test out different lineups, and that kind of is what you got um, yesterday. You know, scoreless draw, scoreless draw, you know, doesn't really mean anything, but I think it was interesting that um, Team USA scheduling a game against Uruguay, one of the better teams in the world, 
you know, kind of prepares them for types of games that they may face in the World Cup in November. So, you know, a decent showing. You know, I don't think that there were too many great scoring opportunities. You know, I think that uh, really the best one came in the second half, and Sean Johnson made a great save to preserve the scoreless draw. I think that was at some point in the middle of the second half, but Team USA comes away with uh, a point in theory, but obviously it doesn't count towards anything. Uh, Team USA will have a couple of games in the CONCACAF Nations League, um, and these two games are Friday upcoming. Team USA will play against Granada, and then they will play against El Salvador. Um, and then I believe there will be another international break in September where Team USA will probably get in a couple games uh, before they prepare and go to Qatar for the World Cup in November. So we'll keep you updated on those games. Um, also, Team USA got their opponent confirmed for their first World Cup match as Wales beat Ukraine in a European playoffs. So Team USA will play Wales in their first game on November 21st in Qatar. So that completes Group B for Team USA as they will play in a group with Wales, England, and Iran. So that will be interesting to see how Team USA does in their first game. You know, Gareth Bale, obviously the big name for Wales, but you know, as, as John and I, I think have said a couple of times, it really seems like this is a group that Team USA in theory should be able to get out of, but obviously you never know. But I think that it's not the hardest group, but obviously it's not the easiest group either, but I think it will be some good um, competition for Team USA in the World Cup. So I think we'll move on, take a look at some NBA notes, um, kind of a big bombshell in the NBA that dropped yesterday. Uh, Quinn Snyder stepping down as coach of the Utah Jazz and uh, sources reported that uh, Donovan Mitchell was uh, unnerved by that news. So uh, things are going to get really crazy in Utah with, you know, Snyder stepping down, you know, curious to see if they make any moves, if they trade Mitchell, if they trade Gobert. You know, I really think that looking at Gobert's contract and kind of the type of player that he is, I feel like Mitchell's the easier guy to move. But you know, who knows, but it's going to get really interesting over there in Utah, and guess who's running the team? Danny Ainge. So, you know, it's just interesting that, you know, he's taken over a Jazz team that he really doesn't have any, you know, attachment to any of these guys. So I really wouldn't be surprised if there's some crazy stuff that goes on, you know, if they make a big trade for Donovan Mitchell, because I think clearly we've seen with that team that they just have not been able to put it together in the playoffs. You know, they can play really good regular season basketball, but they just can't get it done when it comes to the postseason. So it'll be curious to see if they decide to, um, you know, blow it up, so to speak. Um, I think that that kind of was really the only other large NBA news that happened. Um, And so I think we'll take a look at Major League Baseball, take a look at some news. The uh, Yankees' Miguel Andujar requested a trade. Um, Max Scherzer had an interesting 
thing happened to him. He had the, his dog bit him, so he sounds like he sounds like his hand is going to be okay. I think he is currently on the disabled list, but just kind of some wild news there. Um, and then we'll take a look at some Major League Baseball standings and take a look at where the Red Sox are in the wild card standings. Not much has changed in the division. Red Sox are uh, 12 games back of first place at 27 and 27. So obviously the good news is they're playing better and they got their record up to 500. But the bad news is they're really not making any headway because the Yankees are just, you know, ripping through Major League Baseball. They're 39 and 15 um, at this point in the season, seven and a half games ahead of second place Toronto. They actually have the second largest division uh, lead at the moment as they lead the Blue Jays by seven and a half games. Um, in the Central, the Twins lead Cleveland by four and a half games. So Minnesota on top in the Central, Houston on top in the West, eight and a half over the Angels, who, you know, as we mentioned earlier, they've lost 11 straight games. Um, and then Seattle has dropped back a little bit, 24 and 30. They're the next Red Sox opponent after the Angels. So Houston in first at 35 and 19 in the National League. The New York Mets continue to play great baseball. They are eight and a half games ahead of second place Atlanta. The Mets are at 37 and 19, had the best record in the National League. In the Central, the Brewers with a half game lead over the Cardinals, who have made it interesting. The Cardinals have won seven of their last 10. The Brewers have lost three in a row, so that division's getting a little close. Um, then the Dodgers with a two-game lead over the Padres in the West. So you take a quick look at the division. There are three wildcard teams, and as luck would have it, the Red Sox are actually in that third wildcard spot at the moment, a half game ahead of Cleveland and Los Angeles. Toronto and Tampa Bay are atop the first two wildcard positions in the National League. The Padres have the first wildcard, wild card, followed by the Cardinals, who have the second wild card, and then the Giants hold the third wild card with Atlanta two games back. So I think we're going to move to some NFL. There were some retirements that took place over the last couple of days. Uh, Frank Gore signing a one-year deal, or one-day deal with the 49ers, um, heading to their Hall of Fame, retiring after a, a tremendous, you know, Hall of Fame career. I mean, I think he's third all-time in rushing yards, so uh, happy trails to, to Frank Gore with a tremendous career that he had. Um, another person that uh, also retired, uh, Ryan Fitzpatrick, you know, obviously the, the journeyman quarterback played for nine different teams, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, just a tremendous career for him. You know, he was a guy that really kind of made his career happen, you know, on his own, you know, really did a great job, I think, uh, to make a career out of that, you know, is really impressive, I think, to play for so many different teams, so many different types of offenses, you know, be able to get along with so many different guys. I mean, I think, we celebrate the guys who have, you know, these all-time all-time careers, you know, Peyton Manning, Drew Brees, Brett Favre, you know, Brady, whenever he goes. But I think, you know, someone like Fitzpatrick deserves a lot of credit for, you know, being able to be someone who 
could be flexible, could play for nine different teams. I mean, it's just pretty amazing when you think about it. I mean, obviously, we'd like to think times like these, it's easy to play for, you know, one team, but to play for nine different teams and nine different organizations, you know, it speaks a lot to his his journey, you know, and him and him as a person, you know, I think uh, just a tremendous career for him. Um, the 49ers, Alex Mack, re- announcing his retirement after 13 years. So those are just some notes from the NFL, and I think that that will probably do it for, for me this week for the uh, for the podcast. But obviously, as I mentioned earlier, we'll be doing another uh, mailbag episode for Guest Friday, so definitely be advised on the social channels as we'll be putting that out so you can feel free to, um, you know, message me on Facebook or Twitter, you know, message the podcast on Facebook or Twitter, or, you know, tweet it at us. That would be great. You know, I'll probably set up um, a hashtag much like I did last time. Uh, But obviously looking forward to everyone getting in their questions for this week. So, um, you know, as always, you can listen to us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You can follow the social pages Um, And please do that because that's where we'll be uh, communicating with you guys about the uh, mailbag this week. So everyone enjoy the rest of your week and we'll talk to you guys later this week.